Welcome to How to Save a Planet. I'm Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. You didn't put doctor in the script, so I forgot to title myself. Oh, my God. (laughs) This is the podcast about what we need to do to address the climate crisis and how to make those things happen. So for those of you who listened to our last episode, you know that this is part two. You made it through the cliffhanger and you came back for more. More of our magnum opus on kelp farming and how it's a carbon solution. That's right. And if you didn't listen to last week's episode, welcome. New listener. Or maybe sporadic listener. Or a listener who's just like, I don't listen to things in order. You squares. (laughs) I do things my own way. Trailblazing listener. We're glad you're here. Now that you're here, what should you do? You can either... Pause and go listen to part one. The backstory, the down low on seaweed. Or if you're a free thinker and not like those sheeple who listen to their podcast in order, we'll just do a quick recap. (laughs) So in the previous episode, we spoke with Brent Smith, a fisherman turned kelp farmer. Uh And kelp is a type of seaweed basically with really big leaves. It can grow up to two feet in a single day. Which, bananas. It's a marvelous crop. I am biased towards marine species in general, but it's nutritious, it's healthy, it's easy to grow sustainably, and it can be a climate solution in that it absorbs carbon and can help protect our coastlines from the impacts of extreme weather. So a big domestic seaweed farming industry in the United States would have all those benefits, plus it would allow us to shift some of our food production away from land-based climate-damaging big ag which would also be a good thing. Mm-hmm. And there's big potential for seaweeds as biofuel. But. But. There's a catch. <laughs> I guess, yes, no pun intended. <laughs> the The catch is that our fisherman turned kelp farmer Bren has this problem. For this vision to come true, more people in the United States need to buy kelp. And so to help with that, He's working with these two guys, Casey and Craig. So let's pick the barrel that we're going to use first. Um, so these are the two guys that I met when I got off the boat from Bren's seaweed farm with him. Casey and Craig were waiting to meet him on the dock, and Bren rolled five barrels of the kelp that he just harvested into the back of their pickup truck. So you guys are the uh, next link in the chain. You're right? the next link in the chain. So we've got a... Uh, a pickup truck filled with five barrels of about 579 pounds of um, Atlantic uh, sugar kelp and farmed from Bren Smith's farm. And so they bought the seaweed from Bren. They paid a pretty good price for it. And now they have to figure out what to do with it, how to turn it into something mm-hmm. else that someone else will want to buy. Oh, so yeah. what you guys are trying to do is essentially build, um, like... Brand is trying to become this thing called a kelp farmer. Yeah. And you're trying to establish a thing that doesn't really exist in the States and possibly in the world, which is... Regenerative middleman. Regenerative middleman. Regenerative middleman. Regenerative middleman. Yeah, like regular middleman, but for regenerative farming products. I mean, does it work? (laughs) I don't know. So like Casey, he said he worked in the food industry for a long time and... Uh, mm-hmm. A little more on that later. But he says, you know, middlemen, they get this bad rap. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like, cut out the middlemen, blah, blah, blah. But really, middlemen can be really good things because, you know, if I'm a farmer 
growing crops. My crops can go to a lot of different people. They can go to like processors and local restaurants and, Mm -hmm. you know, fertilizer manufacturers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if I had to go make the contracts with all those different people on my own, you know, I'd never have time to farm. So Casey says the middleman does that. They buy the supply and then sell it. The basic proposition is just we'll buy from the farmers. And what we're trying to do right now is just figure out the best way to scale up what brand is trying to do the next the next step it seems like what you're trying to do is is create create a market for the things he's growing that is the short answer yep if they can create a big robust market for seaweed in the united states and grow the market that already exists globally that would unleash the climate saving potential of seaweed do they think they can do that what's the plan well today on the show we're going to talk about that and the big plans our fisherman turned seaweed farmer brent smith has up his sleeve We'll tell you what their plans are. After the break? After the break. You. Welcome back. We're talking about how to scale seaweed as a climate solution. And I'm following these guys, Casey and Craig, to their processing center. They're with an organization called the Crop Project. And what they're going to do is try to turn the kelp that they just got from kelp farmer Bren Smith into something they hope can become products that they can sell. These guys, they have a track record of doing something like this. At least Casey does. Because he has already turned this trick with another food that had a lot of benefit to the world that almost nobody in the U.S. at least had heard of or wanted to eat particularly. What was it? The chia seed. Oh. Yes. The reason... I've definitely been sucked into the chia seed scenario. Casey is probably a big part of the reason why. So, like, he told me the story of the chia seed. So his brother and all his brother's friends were these former college athletes. Um, And after they graduated and got desk jobs, they were thinking about, like, how to eat healthier because they weren't running around all day. Mm -hmm. And they came across the chia seed, which is native to Mexico. It was actually a big part of the Aztec diet. And just as a small aside, I found this interesting. The chia seed's popularity waned because the Spanish banned it because it had religious significance to the Aztecs. Whoa, that is interesting. Yeah. Anyway, Casey's brother and and his brother's friends, they realized the chia, it's like the world's perfect food. (laughs) It's got all these nutrients and it's super healthy for you. Lots of protein. Lots of protein, yeah. And they were like- Stores well. This is amazing. Right, exactly. And it's like- Good for your heart. And Pretty mild flavor. If the, if the world ate more chia seed, everybody would be healthier. And so they ended up making these chia energy bars that they were trying to convince people to eat. I think I ate those early energy bars. What was this, like, probably 2012? Yeah, yeah. I think I, like, knew one of the entrepreneurs who was a part of that company and got suckered into, like, buying boxes of them. There was, like, a chocolate peanut yes. butter flavor. Pretty good. Yeah. They were well. That was later because they started awkwardly out, stuck in your teeth. They started out and like they couldn't make. They, they, it took a long time. They tried, you know, tons and tons of different bar recipes, and then they finally hit on one that people seemed to like, and um, they sent it to Whole Foods. Sent it to a buyer at Whole Foods who was super generous and uh, sent us an email about six months after we launched saying, "Congratulations, we're going to put you in all of our stores." And we were wildly unprepared for that. Um, but we grew it up and, uh, you know, we hired a full-time team to go and do demos at all the Whole Foods. And um, we ended up 
fast forward seven years and we sold the company to PepsiCo. And I was there for about 12 months until this past December when we started this. Casey has many years of experience doing something very similar to what they're trying to do with Brent Seaweed. You know, sort of take this agricultural product that is not very well known in the United States and, and building a domestic market for it, just even on a bigger scale. Because they're not just talking about making some energy bars here. They're talking about making a whole bunch of stuff. And so I went along with them to see how they were doing that. The drive's about an hour, but... Okay, great. I hopped in the car, followed Casey and Craig in their truck to see how they were trying to do this, right? To create a market for seaweed. And so we drove through this beautiful Connecticut landscape. It was summer, it was a lovely day. And eventually pulled up onto this site they were using. A local farmer was lending them this big shed to use. You can think of what they're doing here as like basically a big R&D experiment. They've got a couple thousand pounds of kelp, and they're working with a bunch of different partners to keep, see if they can turn that kelp into something useful that people will want to buy. But in order to get the kelp ready for these partners that they're working with, mm-hmm. they have to process it first. So this is a 100-gallon galvanized steel stock tank. It's like one of those big corrugated metal drums mm. with insulation duct taped all around it and this fire lit underneath. I got to tell you, it did not look polished. Looks like a high school science experiment, <laughs> but like much, large. <laughs> but it was this huge tank of, of heated water. And then they took these big sheets of brownish kelp strands, like 10 feet long, and plunged them into this heated water. We're sticking it in water. It's like 150 degrees. And you see it turns a bright green almost immediately. So we're going to dunk it on one side, dunk it on the other. And then you pull it up. And it's transformed into a beautiful green color. color. And then they take it out and they dunk it in a second big tank, this one filled with really cold ice water. We're dunking it in ice to stop the cooking. Stop the cooking. So this is probably, how long do you think this is? Like eight feet? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, about. And so then they take it out of there and then they bring it into the shed and they get on this big ladder and they just hang the kelp from these huge hanging rafters that are in this in this tobacco barn. Like hanging it up to dry, like laundry. Yeah. And the farmer they're working with is actually a tobacco farmer. There are tobacco farms in Connecticut. Hmm. And the reason they wanted to work with this guy is that kelp, like tobacco, needs to be dried. Huh. Have you ever been in a tobacco barn? I didn't even know tobacco barns were a thing. It's a dry, I mean, a drying shed, I guess, but they are huge. Hmm. It's like an aircraft hangar size building and it's all wood. Oh, wow. And it's just huge and open and it's got little windows all along the top and it just goes on forever. They harvest the tobacco leaves and then they just hang them to dry. And so they're doing the same thing with the kelp. And then once it's dry, it's super, it's super crunchy. Like he shows me this like big. Like a kale chip? Yeah, you can hear it crunch. It is, like, absolutely dry, like bone dry. And so they are going to mill the the dried kelp. They mill it into this flour, and then they send it out to all these partners who are experimenting with it, trying to make things, you know, like doing R&D with kelp. And I asked them, like, what kinds of things could this kelp and what end are we up making making? with kelp flour? Uh, and, they, and they were like... Muffins? Oh, so, so many things. Bioplastics, cosmetics... Uh, food, animal feed, uh, fertilizer, compost, um, fuel. fuel, 
biomass. Um, there's a lot of different potential uses for it. It's kind of this amazing crop that can be used for a bunch of different things. Seaweed is so multi-talented. Alex, I think maybe my favorite seaweed climate fact is that if you add just a little bit of asparagopsis, this specific type of seaweed, to the feed of cows, that alone can reduce the amount of methane in cow burps by over 60%. Which is big because methane is a super potent greenhouse gas. Mm -hmm. It's pretty compelling, just, you know, for a little seaweed and with their feed and, like, suddenly less flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the visit. That's so cool. And then, so I asked them, so, okay, so when the stuff... You know, once you come up with like what you're doing with this, will you, will you let me see it? And they said, yes, absolutely. They're going to send me the prototypes. Cool. Oh, seaweed taste test. Seaweed taste test. I'm in. The seaweed taste test and a great kelp unboxing. That's after the break. Ooh, stick around. <laughs> unboxing on a podcast. It's going <laughs> to be so exciting. Welcome back. So, Alex, after your visit with Casey and Craig, the self-proclaimed regenerative middlemen, Uh some boxes of kelp products arrived, Uh and a bunch of us on the How to Save a Planet team got together with Brent Smith, the seaweed farmer, on a video call. So, okay, Brent, it has been a few months since we were out on your boat off the coast of Connecticut. I'm still so jealous. I know. Uh, and, and and also, like, one of the few times that I left my house in the last this is six months. Um, so thank you for that still. Mm. And then I went to the tobacco farm and watched Casey and the crew dyeing the kelp that uh, that we harvested. I say we. It was you. I just watched. <laughs> you, you, were gr- you were great at watching. Watching other people do <laughs> manual labor. Uh, <laughs> after the trip, um, you promised that you'd mail us a bunch of kelp products so that we could see the full life cycle of the stuff that you harvested and sort of what it becomes, because that's the whole game here, right? We're trying to like both create a farming ecosystem for this, create the economics that would support kelp farms. And so we have to figure out like, how are we going to use the kelp? Exactly. And uh, we've got a bunch of the How to Save a Planet crew on this video call for a big unboxing. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) You want to just quickly introduce ourselves? Uh, Kendra, you want to start? Uh, I'm Kendra Pierre-Lewis, and I'm a reporter on How to Save a Planet. And for the record, I want to say, I like eating kelp as kelp. I don't feel like it needs a lot of other things to go with it. I have been known to snack on seaweed for fun. Uh, we, have a, we have a ringer. Okay, so six people, I got one. I'm, this is jury selection, basically. <laughs> Anna? <laughs> Hello, I'm Anna. I am How to Save a Planet's associate producer. I have never eaten... Kelp, to my knowledge. She's the real test case. I am the rookie. (laughs) Caitlin? Hey, I'm Caitlin Kenny. I am the editor of How to Save a Planet. And I live with a bunch of seaweed aficionados, but I'm not one. My husband's family is from Taiwan. His dad's like a great sushi chef. My kids love to snack on seaweed. And my husband has been quite happy to have seen, you know, going from a kid who was like made fun of for having sushi in his lunchbox to like... Everybody's eating seaweed at our kids' school. But I, I have to say I haven't fully come around the way the rest of the family has. Yeah. And then Lauren? 
I am Lauren Silverman. I'm the senior producer of How to Save a Planet. And um, I don't have strong feelings about seaweed, but I do like the sea. And weed is also okay. So seaweed probably (laughs) will go down just fine. (laughs) Oh my God, I did not see that coming. (laughs) Go team. And then, of course, you got Ayana and, and me, who, and who you know. Ayana, are you? Are, what are your feelings on seaweed? I don't. I actually don't know. I'm strongly in favor of seaweed. All right, let's let's open some boxes. Bren, what'd you send us? So the first box. So there's two. There's a big one and a little. Yeah. One. So you open up the biggest one. All right, I'm All right. unwrapping this. You guys are so much better at opening. I, I, my my unboxing career on YouTube is doomed before it even begins. <laughs> it would just be me cursing and cutting myself. Well, I, I'm looking. I'm like, I really don't want to spend the holidays with these folks. Like, I'm, I got stuff to do. Is it a can? Wait, it looks like a is beer. Beer? Uh, so this is a beer. Yeah. Wheelhouse Gray Sail Brewing of Rhode Island. Uh, it's a sour. Sorry, you know, I don't know if you guys oh, like yeah. sours. but Should that's we what... pop it open? Nothing like a yeah. warm beer yeah. on a Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> Just love opening cans. So there's kelp in this beer. Yep, there's infused kelp in there. And it was fresh kelp that went in. Whoa. It's good. It is good. Mm. I don't think this tastes like seaweed. <laughs> Mm-mm. That's that's the goal, Ayana. Hide it. <laughs> so wait, so beer is not what I would have thought when we're thinking like kelp products. I would have thought like chips, salads, I don't know. Well, the, you know, this is part of the effort just to get it into things like spaghettis, breads, uh, or, or beers. How much kelp goes in a can of beer? Oh, like very little, you know, maybe um, uh, like a couple ounces. And okay. that's one of the challenges, right? There's no way um, I can make a You're living have to selling. to drink a lot of beer. Yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. There's lots of foods like that that are just sort of like additives to mass market foods of various kinds. And is that one of your hopes for kelp is that it becomes like soy, sort of like an additive to lots of things, not just beer? Exactly. There's no way you can address climate change with sort of living in that boutique space. So I think weaving uh, kelp and other seaweeds through all these different industries um, uh, is really the way to go. Should I should I open the pickles? I'm mm-hmm. jealous. You got pickles. I'm jealous too. I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm not jealous. I'm smug. Satisfied. <laughs> Wait, so the question is are the kelp themselves pickled or is it is it kelp flavored pickles? No, the whole thing is pickled, right? So, Wait, so uh, it's the kelp that's pickled. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. Here he goes. There we go. Nice vacuum seal. There are two kinds in there. Is that the bread and butter? Mm-hmm. Mmm. Sweet pickles. Mmm. Mm-hmm. It has like a very strong dark green <laughs> algae color mm. to it. It's a weird food sound. Well, he's, on, he's on his oh third God. bite. So good. <laughs> so that's that's kelp from our farm, from the Greenway farm. And you know, there's a long tradition of pickling kelp. So kelp is really, really a good like sauerkraut. It's a good good pickle. Yeah. So is this stuff? For sale, Brent, the beer and the pickles. Anyway? Yeah, so the the beer definitely is, and there are um, that that pickle run was a short run. It was like five hundred uh, mm-hmm. uh, units. We'll, this season we'll be selling it, but we'll, it's going to be um, kelp pickle stems. So the stipes, which are these mm-hmm. thick yeah. um, pieces, uh, Alex, you you saw them. They're they're the sort of roots of the kelp. Make really good pe- pickles because the texture is great. That sounds good. Yeah. 
Um, all right, what's the next box? So your next box is our 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 trip to try to break out of the boutique. Right? Break this out of the, the boutique. Okay. This is the big deal, right? Yeah. So this one is this is kelp flour. Oh. <laughs> and this is where we're taking the kelp. It was dried in the tobacco barn. Right. This, this is actually the kelp that you traveled with. Oh, it is. This is what it has become. It's become yeah. this this bag of looks like looks a, like matcha, matcha. Yeah. yeah, and it smells like the ocean where matcha smells like wow, the ground. It smells like dried seaweed. So Whoa. it's really it's it's really strong. Oh I, man! And so this we dried in the tobacco barn, and then we milled it in Michigan. And mm-hmm. this is where we move into ingredients. So we can use this. We do in plant-based burgers. There's a company, Akua, that's rolling out plant-based seaweed burgers um, this spring. Um, and then we can, you know, use it as a real flour, like an almond flour. And th- again, all these things, there's a long tradition. So, you know, fritters and scones, um, people use sea- seaweed to make those. In, it was Irish and Italian, I think, back in the 1800s. So this is part of tapping into that old culinary history. And then this can also be used for bioplastics. So some of this powder is exactly what went to some of the bioplastics companies that are using seaweed to create straws and packaging. This can be used also as the basic input for for fertilizer mixes, things like that. We like it because it's light and stabilized. Hmm. It's also weird that you can use something to make pasta noodles and also fertilizer. I know. I I know. That's that's a marketing (laughs) challenge, I think. (laughs) How, How do we go from these things that we just opened here to having an actual Im- impact on climate change. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that was the challenge. You know, we have 10 years to really tackle climate change. And um, the challenge with thinking of everything as food is that food tastes, they change very slowly. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this unique problem of the, the clock attached to climate change means that we just, we need to find multiple strategies. And that's why I love kelp actually um, uh, as a crop for me to grow because we can move on food, we can move on fertilizer, we can move on bioplastics, we can move on cosmetics um, uh, all at once. And there I have hope. Like let, Let's bundle all, all these possibilities. Mm-hmm. So kelp jerky is not going to cut it even if it's delicious. We need uh, we need to think about full market infiltration. <laughs> yeah, I think of it Every as sector. like a, a whole plant strategy. Right. So we need something for our waste. I mean, fertilizer is fascinating. Right. So whatever part of the kelp is attacked at the end of the year by sea squirts and, you know, all these other pests, those all hold nutrients that land based farmers need. But so so you're saying like the fertilizer thing, you, you can sort of take the kelp that isn't food grade that has been attacked by all these like undersea organisms that eat it and you can still repurpose it as fertilizer. Yeah. So we'd have zero waste um, mm-hmm. Right out of the gate, but I'm increasingly interested in like in the land and sea connection and agriculture more than the food economy. But you know, kelp jerky really has its role, right? We need to we need to personify kelp, right? These mm-hmm. and we we need stories attached, and we need to you know move people's stomachs to move their uh, their minds and hearts very often. I actually bought a book about George Washington Carver after going out on your boat, just because I was like. It, this feels similar to sort of like what he was involved in too with like, you know, the, the many well, stories we hear peanuts. about George Washington Carver and the peanut, but like, is that a, a link that you draw? I have no idea what that story is. Are you the Carver uh, of Kelp? Yeah. Wait, what, what, what's that story? George Washington Carver was a famous African-American scientist and he uh, did all these experiments with the peanut 
this is the school kid history you learn in America, I guess. And I think you have to go to school to get it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the backstory was that he, he knew it fixes nitrogen because he was in the South, and oh. that was a huge problem in the South. Yep. Mm-hmm. But you couldn't just plant peanuts because not that many people would eat peanuts. It was considered like a lower class food. So it was mostly African-Americans who ate peanuts. And, and we needed to create a market for peanuts. And so he did all of this research on ways of using the peanut. And he wrote this book called How to Grow the Peanut and 105 Ways of Preparing It for Human Consumption, which included recipes for like peanut butter and ways to use peanuts and synthetic soap, Worcestershire sauce, ice cream and face powder. So I'm reading about Carver right now. And just for a timestamp, he was born in the 1860s and He was a professor and the head of the agriculture department at Tuskegee, and it was peanuts and sweet potatoes. Oh, wow. So that people could have food sovereignty and improve their quality of life, as well as um, recover the soil from depletion due to so many intensive plantings of cotton. Interesting. But the story that you're— 105 food recipes he printed for mm-hmm. using peanuts. That's just the food recipes. The story that you're taught in school is that, like, he came up with over 300 different uses for the peanut, including paper from the shells. and But, like, the story of, like, why he was doing it, which was to try to repair this environmental catastrophe, you don't really hear that. Went on to become a peanut mogul. The George Washington Carver of the Sea. Yeah, we need him now. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It, I mean, it is. I, I was just talking to some um, one of our uh, indigenous leaders in the seaweed farming space up in Alaska. And he was saying as he's been going around to meet with um, tribes, I think of this in terms of jobs or making a living. Um, but that's way down the, their list. They're interested for one restoration and two uh, food security. And then he was saying that there's some suspicion about, you know, commercial farms in the setting and taking a natural resource and, and doing this. And so that entry point of restoration and food security, I think, is, um, uh, yeah. is, a, is it might be an even more powerful way to think about kelp. So I have to jump in here with a quick interjection, Alex. Uh-huh. This work that's happening in Alaska, I just need to press pause and say more about it because it is extremely cool. <laughs> right. Well, I actually when when Bren talked about it, I was like, "Oh, that's that's cool." So I'm glad that you're I'm I'm glad that you know more about this. Yeah, there's more to the story. And this indigenous fisherman, Dune Lankard, and his organization Native Conservancy are leading on that. They've done a few pilot projects and they're just getting ready to scale up their kelp farming. And one of the things that they have found is that herring, mm-hmm. the, the, the fish, fish mm-hmm. whose population collapsed after the Exxon Valdez oil spill in 1989, herring are laying their eggs on the fronds of these kelp plants, like millions and millions of herring eggs. That's amazing. So it looks like seaweed could actually play a significant role in helping the ecosystem recover from that fossil-fueled disaster. That is really amazing. Like seaweed. Worth a little interjection. Yeah. (laughs) And the Native Conservancy is also crafting what they're calling an Indigenous Kelp Farmers Bill of Rights. So I'm excited to see what they come up with there. Mm -hmm. And... All this is exciting because if we zoom out, there's 
really no reason this burgeoning industry can't be diverse and inclusive. And sure, along the lines of race, but the same goes for gender. And on the East Coast, especially, the way we're seeing this play out is that there's a significant percentage of the people leading this work who are women, Mm -hmm. from Emily Stangle, who's Bren's co-founder and co-executive director at Greenwave, and Jill Pegnataro, who's their hatchery technician and farm manager, to Courtney Boyd-Myers and her company, Akua, that's making seaweed jerky and kelp burgers, to Catherine Puckett, who is kelp farming in Rhode Island, and Susie Flores, who has a seaweed farm in Connecticut. And so as the industry grows, who is leading it? and how they are leading it are certainly things to keep an eye on. But for now, (laughs) that's the whole of my interjection for now. Okay. Um, Yeah, let's get back to Bren and his vision of what this sector could become. So let's say kelp does become the solution that that you're actually hoping for. It gets huge on the scale that you're imagining. First of all, what does that look like? I mean, the the worry is it looks like banana plantations out at sea, right? It looks like massive monoculture farms, uh, total vertical integration from seed all the way up through processing and, and retail by single companies where benefits are all concentrated at the top. Like, that's my worst nightmare. If that happens, I'm going to have, like, died a total failure, right? And it's a serious risk. I mean, we have some of the biggest companies in the world right now permitting grounds up in Alaska. The small farmers of America have de-risked the industry for big ag at, at this point, you know, on, on the ocean. Our vision is much more of a reef vision. We, you know, we call them green wave reefs, which is um, clusters of small and medium-sized farms, say 50 in a region, a processing hub, a hatchery, and then rings of entrepreneurs, and then you recreate those those reefs. And from my perspective, it's the moment where we can think of this as an industry as a whole um, and really try to build it the right way. One of the things we've, I think we do wrong from the sort of the Wall Street perspective of the world is look for the unicorns. Like what's that one answer that's going to solve climate change? And instead, let's bundle a thousand solutions together, support them all, let them cross pollinate. Let's have a higher appetite for failure because some, some will fail for sure and move forward that way. All right. Thanks, Bren. Bye, I'm gonna, Bren. Cheers. Cheers. I'm going to drink my kelp beer. Thank you. Bye, folks. Bye. Bye, guys. So that was super fun. But during this conversation, and in fact, during my entire time with Bren and with Casey and Craig at the Seaweed Drying Warehouse, I was sort of cycling back and forth between sort of like, it's super inspiring. You know, I mean, it's so cool. The mm-hmm. vision of it is, is is so cool, but also just like, oh, my God, how much needs to happen Mm. for this to sort of actually become like a meaningful dent in in the world and like part of it is like we just need the kardashians to get on board or something i don't know celebrity chefs fine but like you gotta get it mainstream but but i mean even before you have the kardashians you need something for the kardashians to hawk like i feel like maybe they could do it like their makeup lines yeah their makeup lines like kelp-based makeup powder totally Mm -hmm. but you still got to build that right but you know talking to bren that very first time in the studio he put all this work that needs doing into perspective when we asked him our favorite question yeah bren's got that amazing irish dark humor yeah and he, he had perhaps one of my favorite answers to our question. 
how screwed are we? Um, <laughs> I got my Irish side, and I then I have my um, whatever other side I got in me, and um, <laughs> so so I mean, half of me is like we're screwed. This is gonna be an amazing time to live. Uh, we got front row seats to this massive disaster, and there's gonna be so much pain and suffering, and we need to fight for our lives, but we're gonna lose. Right? That's <laughs> that's one side of me. Uh, but I don't mind. Like I get this thing. I don't mind losing. Like the question is, how do you spend your day every day? And, and I want to spend my every day fighting and 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 not saying no, but really figuring out what the yes is. Like that feels like a great life. One half. The other half of my brain. I've got a, a daughter on the way. My wife is um, actually any any day now. Oh, um, expecting. And that's changing me, but it 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 lifts up this other side of my soul, which is you know humans when we get in trouble, when our backs are against the wall, I think is our great creative moment. So this politics of crisis where storms come in, um, droughts, things like that, I think are going to open up these opportunities, these political moments for solutions to step in. And as I, you know, I took my boat to the climate march in New York a couple of years ago, and I never felt totally comfortable with the conservation side right, uh, of things. And then I just found my people, which were, you know, people trying to solarize the haulers in Kentucky folks doing incredible urban uh, uh, food and farming renewal in Detroit, um, the folks doing really interesting new economic development on um, native lands and, and reservations. I was like, wow, this is, this is an army of solutions. And that gives me an incredible hope. I do think that this is only going to work if we keep climate change and justice tied. Right? Like, there's no way we're going to get to climate solutions unless we make sure that everybody benefits. We address inequality. We make sh- and, and like everybody has a stake in this in this future. And we're never going to solve inequality um, unless we address climate change because the effects of climate change are going to hit you know uh, uh, first and worse on on poor people. So we need to keep those linked. And if we do, and if we just as humans this is our best moment, then uh, I think there is hope. So I really like that army of solutions. Mm-hmm. Is it too martial for you? You know, I'm not like the biggest fan of war metaphors for dealing <laughs> with the climate crisis, but you know, I have a soft spot for Brandon Smith, so he can say it if he wants to. Whatever metaphor you want to use, the idea that many people are the solution. Mm-hmm. And also this thought that Bren got to earlier that lots of them will fail and that's okay. As long as there's many, many, many people involved in the seeking, that's okay. And so with that in mind, we thought that idea could be the inspiration for this week's call to action. What we were thinking is that maybe you, listeners, might be the creator of the next fantastic kelp-derived breakthrough product. And we at How to Save a Planet actually did some of our own kelp R&D in our very own kitchens. By we, Alex means neither I nor he participated. (laughs) (laughs) 
But Kendra and Anna whipped up some stuff. The recipe describes that as sort of like a light, you know, essence of kelp. This tastes like the ocean as a scone. (laughs) Which is, to be clear, it tastes pretty good. So to be fair, Anna tripled the amount of kelp flour that was suggested in that (laughs) recipe. Tripling the amount is like, that's a move with consequences. It's a bold move. Yes. And and as for Kendra, she was trying to make kelp-infused bread rolls, but she also had some um, some ingredient issues. So partly because of the grain and partly because I didn't let the yeast rise up, this was my roll. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it's the size of a golf ball. <laughs> and I, um, I told our producer, Lauren, I was like, Yeah, the the bread didn't turn out. And she's like, is it edible? And I was like, nah, no, not really. (laughs) See if your kitchen concoctions can beat ours and send us pics or videos of whatever you make. And for those of you who already use kelp in your cooking, let us know what you make. Mm -hmm. Share your recipes with us. We can't wait to see what you come up with. We'll include a link in the show notes and the newsletter for where you can buy kelp flour and kelp products If you're interested in becoming part of the kelp R&D squad. Squad. Anyway, if you want to see what Kendra and Anna cooked up, we will have some photos in our newsletter. So be sure to go to howtosaveaplanet.show and sign up for our newsletter if you haven't already. I just want to put in a plug for if cooking is not your thing, but you work in manufacturing or fertilizer or plastics or cosmetics or biofuels or any of these other industries that could potentially have seaweed incorporated as ingredients. See if you can get your workplace to start innovating around these more sustainable materials. See what seaweed can do. (laughs) Yeah, see what seaweed can do for you. Book a meeting with your boss. Start the ball rolling. Oh, I love that. Imagine a meeting just pops up on your calendar that's like seaweed tete-a-tete, colon, urgent, all caps. (laughs) Do it and tell us about it. Okay, policy. It will be 0% surprising to our regular listeners that there's a policy angle to this as well because in order to actually start a kelp farm, you need to be able to get a permit to grow the kelp because you're leasing those waters. And in New York State, for example, while growing kelp is not banned, there's also right now no process for getting a permit to grow it commercially. But the good news is the opportunity. There is a bill in the New York State Legislature right now that would make it possible for the first time to get a permit and grow kelp in the waters off of Long Island. Mm -hmm. And this bill literally just adds end seaweed to an existing bill on shellfish farming in the Peconic and Gardner space. (laughs) (laughs) That's the text, and seaweed. And seaweed. And this is something that never happens. The bill actually has unanimous and bipartisan support from the state's Marine Resources Advisory Council. So this is our chance to help, as Bren Smith says, legalize the other weed. (laughs) Get it? (laughs) I love this. So we'll drop a link to the bill in the show notes. And especially for the New Yorkers who are listening, we'll also share a link to a petition you can check out and potentially sign to show your support for seaweed farming. And that's at eatmorekelp.com slash legalize seaweed. Yep. Climate solutions are not just about banning the bad stuff. 
but also enabling the good stuff. Yeah, we got to change the rules of the game. All right, you ready for the credits? Always. How to Save a Planet is a Spotify original podcast and a Gimlet production. It's hosted by me, Alex Bloomberg. And me, Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. Our reporters and producers are Kendra Pierre-Lewis, Rachel Waldholtz, Anna Savory Biscuits Lad, and Felix Poon. Our intern is Ayo Oti. Our senior producer is Lauren Silverman. Our editor is Caitlin Kenny. Sound design and mixing by Peter Leonard with original music by Peter Leonard and Emma Munger. Our fact checker this week is Sarah Craig. Special thanks to all the folks at The Crop Project. We'll be back next week. It sadly will not be about seaweed for the third week in a row, but I promise you (laughs) it will be worth coming back for. It'll still be good. (laughs) 